Take your Bibles with me, if you would. Open them to uh, Acts chapter 13. We're returning to our series in Acts and, uh, and to a portion of the narrative where we see uh, the action in Acts shifting yet again. Uh, Acts 1 through uh, 8, uh, most of the ministry and, and things that were going on in the life of the disciples was happening there uh, in Jerusalem. And then uh, from Acts chapter 8 through about 12, we see their ministry in the gospel uh, uh, filling out the areas of Judea and Samaria. And now from Acts uh, chapter 13, through really the end of the book, we're going to see uh, the gospel and the ministry of the apostles going to now the nations, fulfilling what Jesus said would happen in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he told the disciples before he ascended to heaven, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and all Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. We are seeing Christ's words uh, played out in full, fulfilled, uh, beginning in Acts chapter 13, as the gospel goes to the nations. I've titled uh, this sermon this morning, Gospel Missions 101. Uh, if I could retitle it, I might would retitle it Gospel Mission Essentials, but you get the idea. Here in this chapter uh, of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 13, we're going to see the initial stages of Paul and Barnabas's global mission. And there we will find uh, in this chapter uh, the Lord teaching us several timeless principles for spirit-empowered, word-centered gospel mission. We know and you see on the front of your worship guide that we as a church exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. This text speaks to our life as a church this morning. The, the, the passage that we'll look at this morning, all of Acts chapter 13, will challenge us to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit in worship. It will challenge us to be ready to share the gospel with all boldness and readiness. And it will challenge us to be prepared to do all of this from the word of God himself, pointing to Jesus as Lord. Having looked at this text this morning, I, I would hope that, that by the end of it, we would begin to, in our own hearts and in our own lives, to make a habit of worshiping with expectation. That we would be challenged individually and corporately to improve our gospel readiness. And that we would also always be be on the lookout to point people to the Lord Jesus as the center and the hero of our gospel message. Now, recently this week, I was the recipient of some conventional wisdom for traveling. And one person said, before you pack your stuff for a trip, lay out on your bed or whatever, lay out all of your clothes and all of your money. Then pack half as much clothing and twice as much money. Now, we laugh, but that's helpful. Anybody who's been on a, a long trip, maybe overseas, or, or even just a long road trip somewhere, whatever, you realize that, that very quickly you almost have way too many clothes and not enough money. Now, I would say, however much underwear and socks you laid out to pack, take that much. Don't cut that in half, because you don't want to be caught. That's almost as important as extra money. Now, this is helpful wisdom for traveling, right? To, to ensure that you have what you need when you travel and not too much of the wrong things and not too little of the things that you need most. In fact, if you find out that you don't have enough clothes but you brought twice as much money, you can buy more clothes. Here in Acts chapter 13, the focus of the narrative of Acts is going to shift decidedly away now from Peter and the apostles and and predominantly the ministry that's happening in Jerusalem and in the region of Judea and Samaria, and now to Paul and the mission of the gospel to the many nations, the many cities, the many peoples of the world. And here in this text, we will see what some of the essentials for gospel mission are. What do we need to take twice of and what do we need to leave half of at home? We're going to look at the entire chapter of Acts chapter uh, 13 this morning, but we're only going to uh, read together first the first three verses because there are 52 verses in all of that, and you would be standing for a very long time. But if you would, stand with me as we read Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. There Luke continues his uh, narrative of the early Acts of the Apostles. Here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who, uh, Simeon, excuse me, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them 
and sent them off. And God bless his church as we read his word. You be seated this morning. So what are these gospel mission essentials that we see in Acts chapter 13? Keep your Bibles open because I'll be referencing uh, much of the rest of this chapter as we work through it this morning. The first thing that we find in these first three verses is the Holy Spirit's commissioning call. That's the first event in this new narrative. The Holy Spirit's commissioning call. We find here in these verses that the Holy Spirit works among a diverse people in the midst of their worship. The Holy Spirit works amongst different kinds of people gathered in worship. Now, we learn much about the church in Antioch, that port city that that lies in the sort of northeastern corner of the Mediterranean uh, Sea there along the shore there, where uh, Paul and Barnabas happened to find themselves uh, uh, ministering and working uh, as believers and as leaders in the church. And as that church in Antioch grew and gathered, it also developed various different leaders. And so Luke here in his narrative in Acts introduces us to several of these leaders in Antioch. He calls them here prophets and teachers, those who are preaching God's word and applying it to the people, who are teaching the church how to walk in obedience to Christ. And among these leaders at Antioch are Saul and Barnabas, who were already very familiar with, um, but there are others as well that Luke mentions for us, and we find there a great diversity among these people. First of all, he introduces us to a man named Simeon, whose nickname is Niger. Niger is the Latin word for black. So most scholars believe that Simeon was probably a man from the African continent with dark skin. We find also Lucius from Cyrene. We learned several weeks ago that Cyrene is in that area of uh, modern-day Libya along the northern shore there. So another man from the African continent. And then we have Menean, who Luke mentions as the lifelong friend of Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas was the Herod who's in charge during most of Jesus' life that we read about in the Gospels. That's the Herod that is, uh, that is usually working uh, kind of in the background and doing different things. Menean was raised with Herod. They grew up together. They were schoolmates. They were bosom buddies, if you will. And now this guy, Menean, who, was, uh, who probably had some influence in, uh, in the, the Jewish ruling uh, uh, group and, and, and uh, uh, council there in Jerusalem and beyond, uh, is now a leader of the church in Antioch. A very diverse group. You add to that Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and Barnabas, this uh, Cyprian islander who has now come to faith in Christ from his previous faith um, as a Jew. And we see there amongst this very diverse group, the Holy Spirit working, the Holy Spirit calling Saul and Barnabas as all of the church is gathering to worship. Which leads us to the second thing that we see in the Holy Spirit's commission call in these verses, that the Holy Spirit calls through intentional worship. The Holy Spirit works amongst diverse people in worship, and the Holy Spirit calls through intentional worship. In very brief manner, in just these three verses, we get an inside look at the worship of the early church. Now, we don't get a whole lot of details. We don't get their order of worship and how many songs they sang and which ones they sang and when or if they took the offering and that sort of thing. But we do find what is most important. On this occasion, we find the church here worshiping and fasting. There was among this growing church at this time in Antioch an intentional focus on waiting expectantly for God as they gathered for worship. That was the purpose of fasting, denying your, your, your body either physical sustenance or some other sort of thing, uh, maybe food or water for a time, most common sort of fasting, so that you can spend that time, that energy that you would spend preparing meals and eating meals focusing on the Lord, focusing in prayer, uh, earnestly, expectantly looking to hear from him. The whole church is doing this. And there we read, as Luke says, that in their worship, in the middle of their worship and fasting, the Holy Spirit speaks to the church, setting apart Barnabas and Saul for the work of mission that he's calling them to. Did you notice that there in verse 2? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called. How this impression that the Holy Spirit said, and here I think we're to understand that the Holy Spirit is speaking to the whole church. How the Holy Spirit, how this impression was sensed by the congregation, Luke does not mention. All right? So is it everyone in the congregation immediately had this sudden impression, oh, the Holy Spirit said this. Or did the Holy Spirit spur one of those leaders in the church or someone else in the body to say, I feel like the Lord is saying this to me, and everyone else in the church said, yeah, I agree. Well, we don't really know, but we know that the impression is congregational. It's corporate. Everyone agrees agrees with it. It's a compelling call that brings the whole church together uh, to continue in prayer and fasting to discern uh, what it is that the Lord is calling Saul and Barnabas to do. 
And so that we find in verse 3 that after praying and fasting, the call of the Holy Spirit is confirmed, and Saul and Barnabas are prayed over, they are commissioned by the church, and they are sent out on the first sort of formal missionary journey by the church. Now, for we who desire to be a church that makes disciples of Jesus, both locally and around the world, there's an important principle for us to grasp here, a, a gospel mission essential and for us to intentionally practice in our own church, and that is this, that gospel missions must begin with spirit-filled worship. Gospel missions must begin with spirit-filled worship. Nothing about the worship of the church at Antioch here in these verses is accidental. None of it is incidental. All of it is on purpose, and all of it is done with the purpose of seeking the will of God who speaks through his Holy Spirit. And it is the con- it's in the context of purposeful, spirit-filled, word-driven worship that God calls Saul and Barnabas to global mission. Let us learn here, church, that we can plan all the mission trips and service projects that we want and all the while still miss the will and the call of God if we are not worshiping intentionally, focused on Christ and on the gospel and seeking to be guided and driven by the Holy Spirit in all of our worship Christian, understand this, you should never accidentally find yourself worshiping with other saints on a Sunday morning. You should always be there on purpose and always be there with a purpose. God works and speaks when his children gather with the intention of hearing from him and being changed by him. What great unity and unity of mind and mission might we as a church be uh, expect to experience if every Sunday morning every one of us came with the same focus upon God and intention to be moved by Him as these saints in Antioch did? What sort of revival, what sort of mission uh, explosion might happen at First Baptist West Albuquerque if our hearts, if our minds were as intent on hearing from the Lord every Sunday morning when we gather as these saints in Antioch did? Dear brothers and sisters, what might you need to change in your own approach to worship here at your home church to be the recipients of what God would say to us and do among us week by week? I want to invite you this morning, whatever it is that you need to begin to do to ensure that you are worshiping with unity of mind and mission here at First West each and every week. I want you to take space. There's space in your worship guide. Uh, under There's a whole uh, uh, page of just blank lines where you can write down thoughts that just come to your head. Write down what it is that God is saying to you right now that you need to do. You need to commit to today and begin doing even today to be here with the unity of mind and mission that we know that God has called us to do. Friend, you might need to get to bed earlier on Saturday night to make sure you're able to rise on time to gather with the saints on Sunday morning. It's been said, and I've co-opted the phrase, that Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. Part of your intentionality in worship begins on making plans to worship Sunday morning on at least Saturday night, if not much earlier in the week. Might you need to begin your Sunday morning worship with greater prayer before you step into the door? Might you need to pray over your morning oatmeal and coffee at home, asking God to prepare your heart to worship with the brothers and sisters that are here, saying, God, I I need your help to focus and worship today. I I, I need your help to remove distractions from my heart and my mind today. I want to be there to hear from you, Lord, with brothers and sisters that I know are committed to you also. I expect that you will speak to us today, God, so help us there. Does that need to be your prayer on Sunday morning? Friend, maybe you, you might need to more intentionally recognize the diversity of the body of Christ that is here at First West by engaging younger or older members in more meaningful ways, developing friendships with people who are not like you or the same generation as you. Or maybe you need to begin investing your time and spiritual energy in the lives of other brothers or sisters of different ethnicities or life circumstances here in the body of our church. Whatever will help you to focus more on the Lord and more on the edification of His body And hearing from the Holy Spirit and being led by the Holy Spirit, do it today. Commit to it today that we as a church might be the recipients of the word of God and the movement of God among us, even as these saints in Antioch did. We move on in our text from verses 1 through 3 to verses 4 through 12, and we see mission stop number one for Saul and Barnabas as they've been sent out from Antioch. Mission stop number one at Cyprus. And there we read this in verse 4. So, Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. 
When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of God, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Mission stop number one, Cyprus. Why Cyprus, this uh, electric guitar-shaped island in the middle of the Mediterranean? We don't really know why they chose to go to Cyprus first. We do know that Barnabas was from Cyprus, so perhaps it was just a natural place for them to go first. Barnabas wants to, with Saul, take the gospel to his kinfolk, to the people that he grew up with and knew. Maybe he's leveraging some of his connections that he knew or that he had there in Cyprus as they go. Luke doesn't tell us, but we know that that's where they begin. And they begin at the port city of Salamis on the eastern end of Cyprus, and they work their way over the 90-mile stretch of the entire island, preaching the gospel to the Cyprians as they go. And we find, as they land in Salamis, uh, uh, an early introduction to Paul's missionary method, Paul or Saul and Barnabas' missionary method. You know, as you, uh, those of you who have read through Acts and have some familiarity with it, that in nearly every city that Paul will, first, uh, that, that Paul will visit on mission, the first place he, he will visit is the Jewish synagogue. He goes there first. And we know that Paul sees the gospel as a message of hope and salvation that is to be preached first to the Jews because it's from the Jews that Jesus came uh, in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But also... uh, preaching in the synagogue would have given Paul uh, multiple opportunities to get to know many of the Jewish people from the cities that they traveled in. Because the synagogues were sort of the hub of of not just Jewish religious life, but of social life as well. If you were a Jew in a particular city, you were at synagogue regularly to catch up with friends, to hear from the word of the Lord, to pray, to worship, all of these things. And so Saul goes there to leverage those connections and leverage the opportunities that he has with Jewish people for the sake of the gospel. That's his missionary method. But then we see in the verses that follow, Paul's preaching opportunity there in Paphos. Moving from Salamis all the way west to Paphos, the duo of Saul and Barnabas make their way to this other city. And by the time they get to Paphos, uh, the Roman governing representative, who Luke calls a proconsul, Sergius Paulus, uh, Luke also calls an intelligent man, has heard about Saul and Barnabas. And so knowing that they're in Paphos, Sergius Paulus calls for them. He says, hey, you guys come preach to me the message that you're preaching. And we are at the same time that we're introduced to Sergius Paulus. We're also introduced to a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, nicknamed Elemus, who is a magician by trade. Now, his magic, his, his, uh, his sort of uh, trade in magic is not of the David Copperfield type. It is of the dark, occultic, Aleister Crowley type, okay? So he's not there just like doing card tricks and things like that. This guy is summoning, trying to summon spirits and placing spells and doing all kinds of crazy, dark, occultic things. So as Saul and Barnabas are preaching, are sharing the gospel with Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of the area, Elemus, the false Jewish prophet magician, begins opposing uh, Saul and Barnabas, contradicting their message in order to dissuade the proconsul from actually believing the gospel. We don't know why he's doing this. We don't know what, what's in it for Elemus to, to dissuade Sergius Paulus from believing the gospel, but he hates it and he opposes it. And it's at this moment in the narrative that two uh, significant things take place. First, the narrative of Acts decisively shifts in how it refers to Saul. Luke now calls him Paul. You see that there in verse 9. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at Elemus. Now, Luke notes, fairly matter-of-factly, that Saul had two names. He had a Jewish name, because he was a Jew, Saul, and a Greek name that he went by in the Greek-speaking world, which was Paul. 
And since now Paul is primarily uh, working among Greek-speaking people and to Gentiles, Luke begins using his Greek name. It just seems most fitting. Uh, Those of you who uh, may have thought previously that Jesus changed Saul's name to Paul when he was converted on the road to Damascus, that is not true. Saul always went by two names, Saul and Paul. He had a Jewish name and a Greek name. And now he's working with Greek people, so he's going by his Greek name, okay? And we will uh, call him Paul for the rest of the time, rest of our time in the book of Acts, because that's how Luke refers to him, and that's how Paul refers to himself in the many letters that he writes. But secondly, that's the first of two significant things. But the second, and maybe more significant, uh, this Saul, who is also called Paul, boldly confronts this false prophet, Elimus, who's attempting to hinder, to hamper, to hold back the gospel message. In his uh, confrontation to Elimus, Paul pulls no punches. He minces no words. He calls Elimus a son of the devil, an enemy of righteousness, full of deceit and all villainy. And after pointing out that Elimus is perverting the gospel message in a way that seeks to remove its saving power, Paul, full of the spirit, curses the man to be temporarily blinded for his anti-gospel efforts. Immediately, this magician is made blind, unable to see, and just as quickly... As his blindness comes upon him, we read of amazing news there in Paphos. The proconsul, Sergius Paulus, after seeing Elimus become blinded, Sergius Paulus becomes a believer and a follower of Jesus. Once again, we find God using miraculous events in the life of the apostles to confirm the gospel message as it goes out to new places and to bring about salvation. But don't miss this, friends. The proconsul, Sergius Paulus, does not believe in Jesus because he saw the sign of Elimus's blindness. He did see it and was amazed by it. But the text tells us that he believes because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Do you see that in verse 12? The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for, because of the fact that he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. There are here two things worth noting, friends. One, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, is persuaded to believe not by the miracle, but by the word of God. In your own gospel sharing, don't rely upon miraculous things to happen to convince people of the truth. Rely upon the time-tested, trusted, God-approved message that he has given to us in Scripture about Jesus, his son, who dies for sins and is raised from the dead for our justification with God. Don't Don't rely on the miraculous. Rely on the word that has always been given. Secondly, note that Sergius Paulus is persuaded to believe by his astonishment at the teaching of the Lord. So there's the word of the Lord and the teaching of the Lord. This second point is noteworthy for the fact that Luke attributes the preaching and the content of the gospel itself, not as Paul's gospel, but as the Lord's. This is Jesus's message. This is Jesus's word. Ultimately, the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel, occurs not in the power of Paul or Barnabas, but in the power of the Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit, which we know from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And the content of the gospel is entirely that of the Lord Jesus. So it's preached in the power of Jesus, and it is preached to point uh, to Jesus, who is the center and the hero of the gospel message. Friends, as we see what Paul and Barnabas do at their first missionary stop, I believe that we should be challenged to to know, to understand, to recognize that global missions require spirit-empowered readiness. Global missions require spirit-empowered readiness. Do not miss this morning, Christian, that Paul and Barnabas go to Cyprus ready to preach. Global gospel mission does not come about by happenstance, but with readiness and with preparation. Just as surely as we don't accidentally end up worshiping with other believers, we don't accidentally find ourselves on mission. It is essential that Christians who desire to take the gospel to our neighbors, that we seek the daily direction of the Holy Spirit, even as we take daily steps to intentionally ready ourselves to verbally speak the truth of the gospel to those who are prepared to hear. It is not enough, Christian, nor is it even right to have the mindset for missions and gospel sharing that relies upon divine revelation and divine preparation spontaneously in the moment. Having a perspective like this when it comes to sharing Jesus with others is like a football player showing up to a stadium on a Sunday afternoon in street clothes saying, I wonder if a game's going to break out, right? Or like a farmer walking up to the edge of his field as it lays unplowed and unsown saying, you know, as soon as something grows, I suppose I'll pick it. Christian, you have your call from Christ already. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go make disciples, Jesus says. 
You who trust Jesus as Lord, you have already His own Holy Spirit living in you to empower you to be a witness to Christ. His Holy Spirit empowering you to be a maker of disciples. You, brothers and sisters, have this glorious Word of God, which itself gives us all things pertaining to salvation and godly living. You have, Christian, right now, today, July 8th, 2018, all of the tools necessary to do what Christ has called you to do. Use them. Put them in your tool belt. Practice with them. Work with them. Remind yourself of the gospel daily. Preach yourself the gospel daily from the word. Do whatever you need to do every day to be prepared at any moment to share the gospel with someone who needs to hear it. Global missions require spirit-empowered readiness. So, friend, get ready. Face each mundane day at work and every thrilling day on the mission field in other countries saying, I am ready today. Not I might, not I'll see what happens, but today I will share the gospel. Gospel missions requires gospel-empowered readiness. Dear Christian, are you ready? Get ready. Third, in verses 13 through the end of the chapter, we see Paul and Barnabas on mission stop number two. They've worked their way through Cyprus, and now they'll get in a boat and travel north uh, to the region uh, known then as Asia, modern-day Turkey. And their mission stop, too, happens primarily in a place called Antioch in Pisidia. There's multiple cities named Antioch uh, in the biblical world, uh, and this happens to be a second one. This is not the the, uh, church mission-sending hub of Antioch uh, from where Paul and Barnabas came, but another city in Antioch further west and north of where they started. We read there in verses 13 through 16, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, and we'll look at his sermon in just a moment. As we begin their move from Cyprus to uh, Asia and ultimately to um, uh, Pisidian Antioch, we see first conflict and perseverance at Perga. After leaving Paphos, Paul, Barnabas, John Mark, and others who were with them sailed north to what is modern-day Turkey. And there, Paul and his friends would go several miles inland to a place called Perga, where, where they will prepare for their next, uh, the next phase of their mission trip. There, though, Luke tells us that John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, leaves Paul and Barnabas and the others and goes back to his home in Jerusalem. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly why John Mark left, but uh, for some reason he decided he couldn't be there anymore, and so he went home. We do know, even though that we don't know why John Mark left, we do know that his leaving becomes a point of contention between Paul and Barnabas later on in Acts chapter 15 as Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem and then prepare to go on a missionary journey a second time. Barnabas says, hey, my cousin John Mark is uh, ready to go. He'd like to go with us again this time. Paul says, no way, Jose. And so uh, Barnabas and, and Paul at that point separate. Barnabas will join with John Mark and with Peter and they'll do some stuff and Paul will take Silas with him and they'll go do some things later. At that point, Paul wanted nothing to do with John Mark because he had abandoned them previously in Perga. Now, as disappointing as that might be, don't discount Mark. Don't discount John Mark. For in 2 Timothy, Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy, asking that John Mark be sent to Paul, who is in prison in Rome, because, as Paul says, John Mark has now become quite useful to me. So uh, there's going to be some, con- some, some tension, there's some conflict, but ultimately the Lord is going to work these things out over time. But from Perga, Paul and Barnabas, on their own and with those who remain with them, will then persevere northward over some hundred miles through arduous mountain terrain, uh, through a passage that was at constant threat from bandits and bad weather in order to make it to this other city called Antioch in the region of Pisidia. They persevere on through a difficult journey and through danger even to their own life to take the gospel to this next place. And there in Antioch, Paul does what he always does. He goes to the synagogue, and he shares with those who are there. And, and while there in the synagogue, he's invited by the elders of the synagogue to give a message, to give a homily, to give, as they say, a word of encouragement. 
And so Paul, ever being the gospel mission opportunist, takes full advantage of the situation. And so in verses 16 and following, we see Paul's message in Antioch. Paul's message. We won't read all of this this morning, but you may want to just kind of follow along uh, as I explain what's happening in, this, uh, in these verses this morning. First, in Paul's message, we see this, that God works intentionally. This is what Paul tells the, the Jews who are there at Antioch. God works intentionally. In verses 16 through 25 of Acts 13, just like Peter did in Acts chapter 2, and just like Stephen did in Acts chapter 7, Paul reviews the work of God in the history of Israel. And very succinctly, he shows that everything that God has done, from the choosing of Abraham to the delivering of the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, to giving them judges to rule over them, and later a king uh, in the man David, that this God who has done all of these things has also brought through them Jesus, the Savior, and the heir to David. David's throne, who himself was proclaimed by none other than the highly esteemed John the Baptizer. Now, all of this is to say in, in, in and through Paul's sermon to those listening that God does nothing by accident, and he does everything on purpose and with a purpose. Every moment, every event in the life of the people of Israel, stretching all the way back to Abraham, the father of the people of Israel. Everything God has done, he's done on purpose. None of it is by accident. The way that he brought Jesus about as an heir to the throne of David, all on purpose, all with a purpose. And then from there he transitions in verses 26 to 37 in his message to say, not only does God work intentionally in the history of our people, but Jesus, this Savior, is Lord. Here in these verses, 26 through 37, Paul recounts very briefly the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, specifically as fulfillments of God's word, as fulfillments of prophecy in several different places. Verses 32 through 37 focus prim- uh, is where the primary focus of this prophecy fulfillment uh, uh, takes place in his sermon. And in those verses, Paul focuses most primarily, most intently, on the sonship, on the messiahship, and the resurrection of Jesus as fulfillment of God's word to Israel. First in verse 33, there we read, This, uh, um, I'll begin in verse 32, We bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it was written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 33 is to say, Jesus is the Son of God. Paul quotes, you see a little citation there in your text, quoting their Psalm chapter 2, or the second Psalm, verse 7, as prophetic regarding Jesus, who is begotten by God the Father. Uh, The author of the book to the Hebrews uh, in your New Testament, in chapter 1, verse 5, will quote the same passage from the Psalms to say that, yes, Jesus is the very Son of God. Psalm 2 is speaking about Jesus. Then in verse 34 we read, And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. This is a way of speaking to not only Christ's resurrection, but also his position, his his status as Messiah. Jesus is a risen king and savior in the line of David, Paul is saying here, in accordance with Isaiah 55.3. That's where his citation from the Old Testament comes in verse 34. Now, Isaiah chapter 55 is a chapter that wherein God, through his prophet Isaiah, some 700 years before Jesus was born, calls the people of Israel to repentance and to share again, to share anew in the covenant promises, the covenant faithfulness of God through his Messiah, through his chosen servant. It's a covenant. It's a promise that extends from that which God made with David in 2 Samuel 7 and is fulfilled in Jesus, who who receives the sure blessings of David, as Paul says. Then we see in verses 35 through 37, Jesus the Lord is resurrected from the dead. There Paul writes, therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But, when, uh, but he whom God raised up, speaking of Jesus, did not see corruption. Paul here says very clearly to those Jews in the synagogue at Antioch that Jesus was physically, bodily, raised from the dead, never to see decay and corruption. His bones are in no tomb. Even as Psalm 16.10 states, which is the psalm that he cites there in verse 35, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Interestingly enough, the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 used Psalm 16 as well, this same verse, to defend the fulfillment of prophecy found in Christ's resurrection from the dead. 
And so Peter's use of Psalm 16 and Paul's use of Psalm 16 here in Acts chapter 13, coupled together, show that to, to us that we ought to be able to fairly quickly conclude that Psalm 16 was seen as a resurrection psalm to be applied and understood rightly in light of the resurrection of the Messiah, of Jesus from the dead. Now listen, this psalm, Psalm 16, is not simply co-opted by Christians. They're not like just flipping through the psalms and going, oh yeah, that one talks about like resurrection kind of stuff, we'll just use that. But rather, rightly, you, uh, th- this shows us that Peter and Paul both used Psalm 16 rightly in understanding that David saw the sure care of the Lord being carried out in his own life beyond the grave. David knew that the Lord would not leave him to die and be separated from him forever, but that there would be continued blessings from God upon him even after death. But Paul and Peter take the next logical step. Uh, the apostles here noting that the fulfillment of the Davidic promise takes place in Jesus' life. Jesus, who is the rightful heir to David's throne, is raised from the dead not to see corruption in in ways far better than David was not uh, left without the blessings of God after his death. Jesus is Lord, Paul says in his message. And he concludes in verses 38 through 41 by saying, Jesus saves completely. So God works intentionally. Jesus is Lord. Jesus saves completely. He saves totally. In verses 38 through 41, Paul declares that only Jesus saves entirely. Verse 38, there we read this. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It is through Jesus that forgiveness of the sins that separate us from God is proclaimed. Jesus is the one who provides it. It's the very person of Jesus through whom comes the promise of forgiveness, Paul says. It is by his life, death, and resurrection that payment for your sins and for my sins, for the sins of those listening to Paul in his day. Payment for sins is made by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And salvation is made possible through his resurrection as well. Look, salvation... Forgiveness of sins is not a gift of Paul or Barnabas. And that's the point that Paul is making here. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, is not a gift of any one man or any one apostle, but is a gift of God himself through Christ. Jesus saves completely. Verse 39, Paul then notes that it is by Jesus that everyone who believes, that is, everyone who, who trusts Jesus, everyone who has faith in Jesus, is made right with God. They are justified. Verse 39, he says, It is by him. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, interestingly enough, the English Standard Version translation of the uh, of the original Greek New Testament uses this word uh, for uh, translates the Greek word dikaio here in verse 39 as freed. You are freed from the things the law of Moses could not free you from. But but that word, dikao, does not mean in Greek freed uh, primarily. Primarily, it means justified, made right with God. It's more rightly understood to be justified. It is justification, this uh, idea of one being made right with uh, God by faith in Jesus that consumes so much of Paul's message and his preaching and his teaching to the church both in Rome and in Galatia. We read that in the letter to the Romans and to the Galatians. And it is here in this verse that Paul is talking about justification as well. It is justification that we should understand him speaking about in verse 39. So we should read verse 39 this way. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, the law of Moses, what we read in Exodus through Deuteronomy, provided some freedom from sin, but not permanently. The law of Moses provided for this ongoing sacrificial system uh, that was given by God and for the good of Israel, whereby animals were killed in the place of sinful people and their blood temporarily covered their sins. But this law of God through Moses for sacrifices that paid for sins temporarily was always intended to be temporary, the Bible shows us, and it was always intended to be a shadow of a permanent forgiveness that was yet to come. So the one who trusts in Jesus is freed from, is justified from the necessary work of ritual cleansing and sin sacrifice because Jesus, the Son of God, has made atonement and been the perfect sacrifice applied once and for all sins. So thus, Jesus makes all believers right with God by their faith in Him, not only until another sin is committed, but eternally and forever. 
Jesus saves completely. He justifies those who have faith in him with God. And we find then in verses 40 and 41 from Paul a warning not to repudiate, not to rebuke, not to think little of or to dismiss the gospel message that has now been proclaimed. Because if those who are present in Antioch dismiss this gospel message, reject this gospel message, they too, will be, be, they too themselves will be fulfilling a different prophecy of the Lord from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, which says there in verse 41, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, um, because I'm doing a work in your days that you will not believe, even if one tells you. The prophet Habakkuk, prophesying again several hundred years before Jesus was born, prophesies about the coming of the nation of Babylon to defeat the Assyrians who were presently conquerors of Israel. So Israel's going to get a new set of conquerors in Habakkuk. And in a strange way, a strange thing is going to happen, Habakkuk says, that God is going to bring one set of captors to relieve them from another set of captors. But he says God will work his will through unexpected ways to preserve and restore a remnant of faithful Israelites. Habakkuk's prophecy ends with his full trust, his full rejoicing in the salvation that the Lord uh, gives, uh, that the Lord who gives strength and confidence is also the one who is to be believed and who is to be trusted for salvation. Habakkuk is a, is a, a, a prophet who starts kind of dark and dismal and ends very light and rejoicing. And Paul says, just as God did a strange thing in Habakkuk's day by bringing one set of conquerors to free Israel from another set of conquerors, so also he's doing a strange thing in your own day in bringing in sending his own son to pay for sins, so don't dismiss it or you'll miss the blessings of God altogether. In what follows as we conclude in Acts chapter 13, we see the, the response of the town, the response of the city of Antioch to, Saul, uh, to, to Paul's uh, sermon, to his message. We find there in verses 42 and 44 that some enjoy the message. There, these verses tell us that many people enjoyed the message so much that uh, Paul and Barnabas preached that they invited them to come back the next Sabbath day to preach again. And the next week, not only do the Jews of Pisidian Antioch show up to hear Paul and Barnabas preach, but the whole city shows up to hear them preach. Some enjoy the message, enough so to hear it a second time. But we see in verses 45 and 47 that some reject the message. There we find in verses 45 through 47, The Jewish leaders who showed up to hear Paul and Barnabas preach that second Sabbath day uh, were brought to great jealousy by the presence of the crowds of Gentiles who came to hear Paul and Barnabas preach. And they themselves began to work to undermine the gospel that's being preached there in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas, however, rebuke those who are seeking to threaten the preaching of the gospel. Paul says essentially this, I've done what I know to do. I've shown you Jews, your Messiah and your Savior in Jesus. But since you are so determined not to believe, we're now going to turn our attention to the Gentiles, to those who will believe. Now this too, the turning of attention from Jews to Gentiles, is also a fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49.6. A promise which, uh, uh, which was understood by Simeon, the priest, who blessed Jesus in his infancy as one who would bring salvation to the world, who would be a light to the Gentiles. The context of Isaiah 49, verse 6, implies that a message of salvation for the Jews, is not, uh, for the Jews only is not enough for the chosen servant of God. Salvation for the Jews only is not enough for God's Messiah. It is better and more fitting that he bring a message and a means of salvation, not just to the Jews, but to the ends of the earth as well. Paul says that's happening right now in Antioch. So some enjoy the message, some reject the message, but we see that there are some in the last few verses, 48 through 52, who embrace this message, who embrace this message of the gospel. On hearing that salvation and forgiveness of sins is available to the Gentiles as well, we find there in verse 48, the Gentiles rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Verse 48 says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed that day. As a result of the gospel now being open to the Gentiles, there's much rejoicing among those who are not Jews, who have no connection to the God of Israel, who now know salvation that comes from the God of Israel through Jesus, his son, and their savior. We were told there that all who had been appointed to eternal life believed that day. And here is yet just another affirmation that salvation and eternal life, forgiveness of sins, are entirely a work of God, but which are entirely received through the exercise of faith in Jesus and active submission to Him as Lord. 
So God is in charge. He does all the work of salvation. He's the one who provides a a means of your forgiveness. He's the one who calls you to receive that by faith. He's the one who, who, through his Holy Spirit, works to convince you, to show you the truth of the gospel. And yet at the same time, apart from faith in Jesus, you are still in your sins. So God does all the work, but brothers and sisters, you are responsible to respond to the work of God in salvation by trusting Jesus. What follows here? is what happens in so many other places in Acts when the gospel goes out and people believe it. The spreading of the gospel continues throughout the entire region. Verse 49, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region of Pisidia. The gospel can't be stopped, people. It is so exciting, it's so life-changing, it's so transforming that nothing can stop it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we see that continuing here in Acts 13 as the Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch receive the gospel. Then we see in verses 50 through 52 that still greatly dissatisfied, the Jews who are in that town work to incite uh, persecution against Paul and Barnabas, trying to drive them away from the region. Get your gospel junk out of our city. Paul and Barnabas, in the fashion that Jesus instructed even to his disciples in the Gospels, they shake the dust off of their feet as a way of formally testifying against the hardness of heart among those who reject their message. Shaking the dust off their feet is a way of saying, we've done all that we know we need to do here in the city. We're moving on because you've rejected it. So we're going to a different place. So they move on uh, from Antioch and Pisidia to a city called Iconium, which we'll look at next week. But the believers, the Christians, the new disciples in Jesus who remained in Antioch, who had been receptive to the gospel, we find are blessed by the Lord with both joy and the filling of the Holy Spirit as a sort of dual testimony to their belief. Verse 52 closes the chapter. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Though Paul and Barnabas have had to leave the city, God has not left his new believers, his new children, who by faith in Christ have been saved. He does not leave them alone in Antioch. He gives them the Holy Spirit to be with them. There's a lot going on at the end of Acts chapter 13, but I think there's one principle for us to apply and to internalize and to practice as a church who seeks to be on mission, and that is this, that global missions must proclaim Jesus as Lord. It's the focus of Paul's message to show that all that God has done on purpose, with a purpose, through uh, from the beginning of history up until now, all of it centers around Jesus. He is Lord. That's what God is, is doing in salvation. So know this, that a church on mission is not merely a group of Christians that put new roofs on old houses or dig wells for thirsty villages in developing countries. Those two things in and of themselves do not make a church on mission. A church on mission is not a church that has annual fall festivals and parents' nights out for their neighbors. Those two things in and of themselves, even coupled with new roofs and and wells dug for thirsty villagers, do not make a church on mission. A church on mission is a body of disciples of Jesus that does these things sometimes, yes, but who always, always tells others that Jesus alone is Lord. A church on mission is a church that always says that only Jesus, the eternal Son of God, can forgive us of our sins. That only Jesus can make us right with God. That He is not one of many gods and He is not one of many equal ways to the one true God. A church on mission is a church that always says Jesus is one with and of the same substance as God the Father. He is the only way to salvation from sin that separates everyone from our holy Creator. Friends, and as much as roofing houses and digging wells and providing family activities for, can, can open doors to, to speak of the Lord Jesus, we may do them, but we may never stop there. We may never be content with only doing good things for other people. Southern Baptists have a really great disaster relief, disaster recovery group right, that, that cares for people in the aftermath of disaster, and they do a good job. But, you know, the Red Cross does a good job to care for people after disasters, too. The difference between Southern Baptist Disaster Relief and the Red Cross is that Southern Baptist Disaster Relief takes care of physical needs and then preaches to them also at the same time the the greatest need that they have, which is to know Jesus as Lord. Habitat for Humanity can build a way better house than our church can in a weekend, okay? But Habitat for Humanity doesn't have a plan for salvation for humanity. The church of Jesus Christ does. A church on mission is not a church that just does nice things for nice people. A church on mission is a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to lost and thirsty souls who need new life. We must tell 
the gospel. We must tell with words the beautiful gospel of Jesus and often plead through tears for others to believe it. We must proclaim Jesus as Lord. At First West, we have said that we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that we will do, friends, that we will do as disciples of Jesus who know Christ as Lord. That we will do as disciples who help one another grow in their walk with Jesus. That we will do as we go to our neighbors and to the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So listen, to be a church on mission for Christ with the vision that God has given to us as a church, we must embrace the essentials of global gospel mission that we find here in Acts chapter 13. We must intentionally pursue spirit-filled, Bible-driven worship. We must be ready at every moment of any day to share the gospel with words. We must preach Christ alone, crucified for sins and risen from the dead for the salvation of all who believe. We must preach that Jesus is Lord. We have opportunity this morning to preach collectively to ourselves and and to a watching world that Jesus is Lord, that he died for sins, that he rose again for the forgiveness of sins and for our justification with God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that every time the church gathers together to take the Lord's Supper, as often as they drink uh, the cup and eat the bread, they proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This morning, we're going to share in taking the Lord's Supper together as a body of Christ. Those who have identified with Jesus as our Savior and who have identified with one another uh, as those who are members of this local body of believers. This ordinance is as important in the life of the Christian as is baptism, as an initial uh, act of obedience to Jesus as Lord. We are showing that dual identification with Christ as Savior and with other believers who also uh, trust in Him and who are walking together. This is a memorial meal. There's no special grace from God that's conferred upon you by eating this little bit of bread and drinking this cup. It's just a Uh, a physical way of remembering Christ who died and of encouraging one another as a body and and even ourselves individually uh, of continuing to walk in the commitment to Christ that we have. Uh, Because this is a memorial meal, remembering that Christ is our Savior and and identifying ourselves with Christ, this is also a meal that is for Christians, for those who have publicly professed, I am a follower of Jesus. I've given my life to him. I'm repenting of my sins. I'm trusting him for salvation today. So friend, if you're visiting with us this morning, you're not a believer, you wouldn't identify as a Christian, I would just ask you to uh, refrain from taking this meal today. None of us will judge you or look down on you for it, um, but we recognize that this is something that is for believers, and we're saying something that's true about ourselves, uh, even as we take this, that we're trusting Christ. So if you're not trusting Christ, this meal is not for you yet, but we pray that very soon it would be. Uh, Parents, if you have children who are with you this morning and they've not yet made a public profession of faith in Jesus, I'd ask that you keep them from taking the Lord's Supper this morning because they also would be saying something untrue about themselves. Rather, use it as an opportunity to disciple your children, to talk with them about the importance of trusting Jesus for forgiveness of sins, what that looks like, how how they themselves can do that. Use this as as an opportunity, parents, uh, to preach the gospel to your children. Let them watch you, take it, uh, let them ask questions and and answer them for them this morning. Help them to know the importance of taking this meal uh, only as a Christian does. I'm going to pray for us as we do. I invite you to begin to search your heart and your life for things that you may need to confess to the Lord this morning and begin repenting of, that you might take this meal that reminds us of Christ's death, that you might take it rightly. As I pray, uh, our deacons are going to come. One is going to attend each of these tables. And so um, after praying, I'll invite you to come forward. And so if you're sitting in these center sections, please use the center aisle to uh, come and get the elements. Grab one little piece of bread and one little cup and return to your seats. If you're sitting on the outer aisles, please use the aisle along the wall to come forward and receive your elements. And then everyone use these sort of middle uh, uh, side aisles to return to your seats. And that way we'll just keep the flow of people moving quickly. But we'll have deacons at each table if you need help returning to your seat or if you need to be served at your seat this morning because you're unable to, uh, to stand and walk forward. Um, if that's the case, just raise your hand and one of our deacons uh, will be sure to serve you at your seat as well. After receiving the elements, return to your seat and once everybody has received both the bread and the cup, we'll take the Lord's Supper all together as a body of Christ this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and deacons, you come.